guys. Welcome to Overcrest. I am Jake, and Chris is actually out of the studio today. He is off uh, doing something at Road America. I'm not sure really what he's doing or if I'm supposed to talk about it, but he's off doing a photo shoot for a publication at Road America. Uh, come Monday, we will be going over all of our adventures that we took this last weekend, going to get my new 996 Turbo. If you followed along on Instagram, you know it was... Uh, a lot of fun, a lot of adventures that we had, and taking the back road. It was awesome. So tune in Monday to check that out. This week, for in lieu of a news episode then, for Friday, I wanted to share with you one of our Patreon-exclusive episodes. Now, this is something I record every single month for our Patreon members. You can go to patreon.com slash overcrest. And for as little as $5 a month, you can support the show, get access to exclusive content. And there's, of course, some upper tiers that you can join as well and get uh, T-shirts, stickers, additional swag. And also uh, for the $25 members, Chris actually gives you some of his prints or you can choose a print of his work that he does not sell otherwise. So that's a huge bonus. Um, so without further ado, this is probably one of my favorite Patreon exclusive episodes. Generally, they are all uh, akin to the history stories that you may have heard us do before. Uh, this one, I did an extremely deep dive. It was super fun. Without further ado, this is our Patreon episode on the Lunar Rover. Okay, I'm ready. I'm not going to break it. The map, anything. That's all, Mark. Is he on the ground at all? Yeah, that's 10 kilometers. Huh? He's got about two wheels on the ground. He's a big rooster tail out of all four wheels. And as he turns, he skids. The back end breaks loose just like on snow. Come on back, John. Hey, the deck is running. Man, I'll tell you, Andy's never seen a driver like this. Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we have an episode that's going to be out of this I world. I was just going to say that. Ah! You son of a gun. <laughs> oh, so corny. So good. Uh, dad jokes. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a great episode. I'm really excited for this one. I know Jake's been working really hard on this one. Um, the reason I know this is because every time he comes into the studio, it's not done. <laughs> so uh, we're glad it's uh, it's not too little, too late. You yes. know, we're about a week late on this, but I think it's going to be worth it for sure and before we get into it we just have to say thank you thank you thank you to all of our patreon subscribers absolutely and we put as uh as much time if not more into these exclusive episodes for you guys than we do for the thousands of the people that listen to the to the regular episodes and we're we're really thankful that you're here um we hope you like the pins that we made for you guys yeah, uh, got yeah. them out for you guys first by the time you hear this, they're going to be starting to be packaged up because the kind of the exclusive time to make them available for Patreons first will have been over. And we really appreciate the guys that that purchased them as well. And uh, obviously, um, we gave them to the twenty five dollar uh, sponsors or tier twenty five dollar tier. Yes, and we really appreciate your guys' support. It's it's monumental. I can't. Yeah, more than just the money that 
brings in, it's about just like the moral support. Right? Yeah, because this is a lot. This is a lot of work. It is. It is an incredible amount of work, and I don't think I would still do it if the Patreons weren't here. I don't know if I would either, just because, because it's just it shows how much people care. It's, it's like this little digital hug, like we, 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 we like you. You're a friend. Send Keep us going. a digital hug. Yeah, let's just like let's hug. Let's. All right. So as that first clip alluded to, this is about the LRV, the Lunar Rover Vehicle of the Moon. Chris. Let's do it. I, I'm right. excited. So I don't know. I know. Absolutely so I, nothing about yeah, this. You know some things about it. A lot of these things. No, I know nothing. Okay. Well, you. Okay. Regardless, there are a lot of really cool, interesting stories here that I had no idea about. I'm excited to hear it. Let's, right. let's go. Let's do this. So let's start. On an early morning in April of 1969, two engineers from General Motors stood sheepishly in the hall of NASA's offices in Huntsville, Alabama. Here's here's what I'm thinking. As you say, 1969. Mm-hmm. That's five years after the Civil Rights Act was passed. And I just think of the unifying moments that all of this space exploration and NASA and everybody. I think when I think of this, the immediate thing I think is everybody like sitting in front of their television, yeah. watching this stuff. And it this type of thing brought America together. And I think that. It was just a really, really cool time in the late 60s. That's yeah. what I think of when I think late 60s is like this unifying moment around the space race. Yeah, I think it really was a cool time. So right now, though, specifically, we're talking about two GM engineers who are standing in the halls of NASA, right? So Huntsville was the home to Marshall Space Flight Center, which was headquarters, the biggest rockets the world had ever seen, the Saturn V. Have you seen a Saturn V? I have not. I have seen a Saturn V. It is absolutely massive. Yes. It is massive. Yes. So these were the rockets destined to send men Jake, to the moon. It's big. It's I just I can't impress upon people enough of how big this rocket is because they have them at the Air and Space <laughs> or, or not the Air and Space Museum. I don't remember. It's it's in Houston. You can there's two different places yeah. you can see them. You can see them in DC and you can see them in uh, I believe Houston. And it's laying on its side with with its right um, like, like longwise longwise, but it's separated out. Like all oh, the okay. stages of the rocket yeah. are like broken out, so you can look in and you can see. And one thing that always amazed me is all of the wiring is white. <laughs> How are you going to trace down wires? You just pin check. You go, okay, this number, this pin, and you look at the other side of the loom, and you go, okay, this number is that wire. But there's no wow. The, all the wires are white. So it just looks like an absolute nightmare to yeah. absolutely die. But I guess you, once it goes up, you're not diagnosing anything. Yeah, I don't think you yeah. are. Hey, hold on. Why don't we just climb out and do a pin check? Yeah, on this? let me it's get the multimeter. Wor- it's not working. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is like it just puts into perspective um, when you think about. I'm thinking about these GM engineers in the hallway yeah. with a slide rule in their back pocket. Yeah. Okay. So you think of this monumental engineering feat done without computers. Right. And it's incredible. Yeah. It's it's what SpaceX has done is really, really impressive, but it is in my mind nowhere near as impressive as the first right. effort. And what in was space. done. And what was at done the time. With, with nothing. Nothing but pencils and paper and slide rules and calculators right that was that's it it was this monumental task of human ingenuity and when you see the monolithic scope of what they did when you see the saturn five there you just go absolutely incredible right absolutely incredible not to take anything away from spacex and what they're doing now but it just doesn't have the same contrast of hey we're not in space 
And now we hey, are. Now we are. <laughs> and this is what everything we did to get it. And yeah. this is what we did so we could drive around on the moon. Yeah. <laughs> so let's hear about. Sorry, I'm I'm tangenting off on no, how amazing good. this it, is. It really is. So let's set the stage here. These two engineers were just outside of the office of the famed scientist and director of NASA, Warner Von Braun. The men were now. Under- who is Warner von Braun? Warner von Braun is like the what do they call him? The father of rocketry, basically. Yes, but who is who really is he? You know, he was like a total Nazi, right? Yeah. I mean, he we yeah. basically stole him over from uh, from Germany. He defected essentially. Right. I think he actually developed the V two rocket. Yeah, he did a lot. Was, he was yeah. an he was a brilliant man. I mean, it was kind of weird. I mean, you can do what you got to do. As, right. I mean, when you look at what was going on, then this is us versus them. Right. And if you can have this guy defect and give him citizenship so he can build our rockets instead of theirs. Yeah. No, I think it was definitely a good move. You have to do it. You don't yeah. have a choice. But let's just be honest. This guy was. He was a Nazi. He was a Nazi. For That's why sure. we're not going to dwell. We're not going to dwell too much on Von Braun. But these two engineers were understandably anxious. They didn't even have a meeting with the director. But that didn't matter. They were determined to convince the director that if man was going to the moon, they better damn well bring a car with them. That sounds very GM. <laughs> <laughs> but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's stack back a moment here. You see, in the earlier planning stages of the Apollo program, it actually been assumed that two Saturn V rocket launches would be used for lunar missions, okay? So one would be used to send the crew aboard a lunar surface module to lunar orbit, landing, and returning. That's what that one rocket would do. Then there'd be a totally second Saturn V rocket that would send the entire lunar surface module truck which would include equipment, supplies, and transport vehicles for use by the crew while on the surface. So from the onset, it was simply assumed that a lunar vehicle would be necessary for the missions, and it would be included in the second rocket. So do you know how much it costs? See, we're talking about two (laughs) rockets right here. Do you know how much it costs, first of all, to design the Saturn V rocket and and basically put it together? It was $6.4 billion in the late 60s. That is $42 billion dollars wow today that's the, the project cost right. cost per launch all right is 185 million in 1969 that's 1.23 billion dollars wow in, of today's value so yeah they just thought well we're gonna launch two of them every mission right yeah it's that's what i'm saying this is this is a big huge deal huge undertaking so to that end designs began on a huge pressurized cabin vehicle where astronauts could drive around freely without their spacesuit it's basically like your giant truck they're going to bring to the moon right yeah, yeah. why wouldn't you in fact reports indicate you know what it reminds me of what? it reminds me of all those miatas that people build what? With just like the the roll cage and that's it, and they're driving around with like no oh, actual the XO car thing. Yeah, like the XO whatever, and then it's just a roll cage, and you're just driving around on the streets. That's what these that's what these rollers always remind me of. You're just driving around, you're just right. in the open. No, but that you have to understand that's not initially what the thought was. The thought was it was going to be a big enclosed like tank a, thing, like a capsule, a basically. big capsule. Yeah, okay, a big van type thing. Because of course they wanted to be like, okay, we have to shield these guys. Right, they're, exactly. But in your head, you go. From what? It's a vacuum. There's nothing there. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you wanted them to be able to take their spacesuit off and everything else and be inside this vehicle. In fact, reports indicated there was a need for a massive vehicle weighing three to four tons, accommodating two men with all their equipment and life support for up to two weeks. Okay, okay. 
That would if when they took that to NASA, NASA went no immediately. <laughs> no, I'm imagining it's because no. you would ha- the Saturn V rocket can't carry that kind of payload. Sure it can. No, it cannot. Giant truck. You're just gonna put a big old truck you in this thing. You cannot. You can live you in it cannot. for two weeks on the moon while you drive around with all your equipment. That was the initial plan, Chris. That's okay. why you needed a second Saturn V. For this, this sounds thing. straight out of Space Force. Oh, it does. It sounds amazing. <laughs> However, as NASA continued its work, the cost of such missions became clear as spending entered the stratosphere well before any rockets did. Did you see what I did there, Chris? Yes, it rocketed away. This price rocketed away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So NASA faced severe pressure from Congress, actually, to hold down the Apollo costs. To do so, it was decided that only a single launch could be used per mission. And just like that, a lunar vehicle was scrapped. It was out of the question. Can't we're, do we're that. We're not doing it. We're not doing it. You're all walking, can, buddy. Yeah, that's all we can do is bring the guys up with their lunar module, right? The only that's ride it. you're getting is if you get your thumb out for some moon men. might just happen to be out there. Right. I mean, after all, engineers were struggling on how to fit the astronauts and equipment into a single rocket payload, let alone some silly vehicle, right? That's just can't be done. And that's how planning went forward until that fateful day in April. The, it seems like so much planning with all of this was like, it can't be done. Yep. And some guy went... Well, not yet. <laughs> right? I mean, yes. it goes back to my mantra of if you don't know, it's not that you don't know how. You don't know it's how It's that, that you yet. don't know how yet. Right. And I love that mentality with this yes. stuff. So the two GM engineers outside Von Braun's office that day were Sam Romano and Farek Pavlix. Now, they had come all the way down to Houston from Detroit in a last-ditch effort to persuade NASA that the Apollo astronauts had to have a car on the moon. It was, of course, much too late to be making this argument. The first moon landing was just weeks away. And, as explained, lunar hey, vehicle plans were lunar, scrapped. Can you duct tape this thing to the side yeah, of the just rocket? put it to the side of the rocket. That'll be <laughs> fine, right? Yeah, so plans were scrapped years earlier. But weeks before the launch, they're like, no. GM, we need to do this. We need to get a car on the moon. Did they have a concept at that point? Let me continue. So Romano and Pavlix were so determined, they kept working, convincing GM to fund their research and development. Quote, I decided if it can be done, it should be done. And we want to do it, said Romano. Quote, if there's going to be a vehicle on the moon, it's going to be a General Motors vehicle, and I'm going to make sure it happens. And this is over that five-year period. When they got told no the first time, they're like, you know what? We're going to continue forward yep. anyway. And they Completely convinced GM to fund all of it. With no funding from the federal government, they just Nope, they said, it. we're going to do it. The two men quietly talked to engineers at Grumman, where they lo- where the lunar module... From, from, from who? Grumman? 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 Does that sound familiar? Is that the stupid thing that I didn't know before? Yes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Northrop Grumman? You yeah. know that company that okay. you've never heard of before? Yeah, now no, here it is. All okay. Right. So, <laughs> so these two engineers, they don't have, like, actual permission to work on this. So quietly, they're going behind NASA's back and talking to the engineers at Grumman and saying, okay, what is this lunar lander module you're working on? What's it going to look like? Can right. You just give so us some- as that was being designed and built, they got the dimensions of a storage compartment First of on all, the outside. That is a massive breach of classified. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, that is a, holy shit. You're right. That is go to federal, pound your ass in the prison. Yeah. Pound your pound, ass, pound your, pound your ass. Let's just say you get pounded in the ass in prison. <laughs> 
on that note. Okay, so they got but you some, can't you can't just no, give no, you these technical details. No, that's, probably not. Not to just GM. Right? Some dudes at GM. It's yeah. What a breach. So, that's a crazy breach. Regardless, they got uh, all these specifications and dimensions for a storage compartment on the outside of the lunar module that was not yet allocated for any cargo. Because they're building different like components into the lunar module, and they go, okay, well, you know, all of our life support's going here, and all the equipment's going here, and this one, they didn't have anything to fill it yet. The plan, the only way this could work, would be to design something to fit inside that space. But the whole idea seemed asinine from the outset. That compartment was shaped like a tall wedge of pie, five feet wide at the wide end, five feet tall, and five feet deep, narrowing to a point at the top. That's almost no space. It's an odd shape for any ca- any cargo, let alone a car. So they would basically need to design a vehicle that could somehow fit into a space no bigger than like the back of a station wagon of the cars that GM is already making, while also needing to actually work once it arrived on the moon, which was, by the way, a completely unknown surface. I'll get to that in a bit. They had no idea really what they were going to find once they got like? up there. Is it going to be a crust? Is it going right. to be powder? They had no clue. Regardless of the These are all things that we take from for granted as this hindsight knowledge that we have. Right, yeah. Like we, we know, well, but they we obviously know what that's going to be like because we have the video, right? Regardless of these challenges, this Pavlik guy got to work. Now, Chris, long before the concept of Transformers, Pavlik had created... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Transformers. Yes. All right, so Pavlik is basically creating a Transformer. However, rather than an Autobot... I wonder what his name would be. I wonder what his transformer name would be. Moon Man. Moon Man. Moon Man. No, okay, so rather than an Autobot, yes, thank you, thank you again. This is just going to be the whole episode, isn't it now? Yes, yeah, okay. Yeah. Rather than an Autobot, his creation would fold from its stowed configuration, which was a form of elaborate metal origami, into a usable vehicle. <laughs> yes, it, that's the sound it made the while it did The metal origami. Yeah, exactly. So here's how it worked. The seats folded flat down, and the front of the, of the rover was hinged and folded flat onto the center of the vehicle, wheels, suspension, and all. The rear end did the same thing, and like a pool lounge chair, you know, where the, the back folds in and yeah. the feet folds in, it could be folded flat. Do you think the guy was like at his house trying to figure out what he was doing? And, and he's, he's sitting he, on the- <laughs> he goes out to the pool, goes out to his shed to get his chair for the pool, and it folds it and sets it on the pool deck and goes, I, <laughs> by golly, Jimmy, I've got it. <laughs> so once those are folded in, the front and rear fold to the center, the wheels actually unlock and angle in. To make a package in the shape of that wedge storage compartment. However, even after completing the impossible task of engineering such a vehicle, they still needed to do something even more impossible. Actually convince NASA to use it and bring it with. Right. To do so, Pavlik got some inspiration from an unlikely source. His son's G.I. Joe. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Yes. G.I. Joe! So, you see, during this time, Chris, like you said, 1969, it's like the crazed space age, right? Everything's space aged everything. And G.I. Joe had just come out with astronaut G.I. Joe, wearing a shiny metallic Mercury space suit. Yeah. It's basically like tinfoil G.I. Joe. Yeah. So, Pavlik figured rather than try to convince Von Braun by telling him, he would show him. And so they're so GM designed their own Saturn V rocket. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there stood Romano and Pavlik in that hall outside Warner Ron Braun's office, right? With a scale model of their lunar rover. 
Pavlik had to build an 18-inch radio-controlled scale model. Oh my god, are you kidding me? Which motored along using batteries and was finished with meticulous detail. Everything hinged and worked exactly as it would on the real one at 18 inches large. It was one-sixth the size. Wow. This included seats sewn by his wife. This is what the... <laughs> yeah. Come here, honey. <laughs> I need you to work on this top yeah. secret project. In, this, in while, those seats. While Chrysler's working in the jet car. Yeah, by the way, turbine cars happening turbine at the same cars. time. Yeah. This is what GM is yes, doing. Exactly. Is sewing little, sewing little <laughs> seats in their model. In them sat his son's G.I. Joe. When we think of G.I. Joes, we think of the little ones because we're... Yeah, no, they're fairly big. These are like the size of Barbies, if not slightly yeah, bigger. Yeah, exactly. Did they put the G.I. Joe guy in... Did yes, they send in him those in seats with like a little seatbelt on. His GI Joe. No way. Yes. Oh my god, that's amazing. So cool. <laughs> "Quote: I guided the little model with radio control into his office," said Pavlik, right to his desk. He was on the telephone at the time, looking at what was coming into his office. The NASA director immediately hung up on the middle of his call. He's like talking, and he's like, "I, he just I hung gotta up. go." He just hung up. What do we have here? He asked. And then Romano said that gave us the opportunity to tell him what we could do. That is an incredible. What what a leap of faith. A what half a hour later, Von Braun was convinced. He slapped his hand on the desk with determination and said, we must do this. No, we must do this. We must do this. Yeah. So keep in mind, it was April of 1969, just three months before Apollo 11. Ridiculously late in the game to imagine adding something as complicated as an entire car to the moon flight. So but luckily they had a head start with a complete breach of classified. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So spaceships, the spacesuits, experiments, procedures, not only were they all designed, built, tested, and flight qualified, but the astronauts had been practicing with their moon equipment for months or years, right? But Von Braun was true to both his word and his massive influence. The ramp up to get the work done was astonishing. Romano and Pavlik's group of half a dozen from GM expanded to a team of 400 within two weeks. Pavlik as the chief engineer leading the entire team. So the lunar rover, which would unfold out of the side of the lunar module and plop onto the surface of the moon, ultimately weighed 460 pounds. It was 10 feet long, 6 feet wide. How much did I say that again? 460 pounds. That's nothing. No. <laughs> they kept it light. Yeah, that's a lot different than the four or five ton other Yeah, exactly. Is. So it was 10 feet long, six feet wide, and could carry 1,050 pounds of astronaut gear and rocks across the surface of the moon at a stunning, a blistering speed of eight miles per hour. Here's the thing. This thing weighs 450 pounds and it can carry twice its weight. Yeah. That's a really impressive. More than twice its weight. Yeah. three yeah. What, three times? Imagine. Almost three times, yeah. A car. You're... We're not talking towing capacity here. No, we're talking what it can carry. Right. That's impressive. Yes, it is. So power was provided by two 36-volt non-rechargeable batteries. You're not going to charge it once you get to the moon, so they figured why deal with that, right? It, that yielded a range of 57 miles. That's per phenomenal. Yes, it is. Propulsion came by way of four electric motors mounted at each wheel hub. The motors were made by, who else? Delco which is GM's electrical component division. AC Delco. Exactly. They were direct current or DC series wound motors capable of just a quarter horsepower at 10,000 RPM. 
So not much power there. But they were attached. They, needed. they were attached to the wheel via an eighty-one reduction gearbox. Wow, eighty to one. So these things are spinning at ten thousand RPM, and then the output is just like a few thousand. Right, yeah. right. So one of the more interesting, unique components are the wheels themselves. So the wheels were designed by Frenek Pavlix himself, dubbed the Resilient Wheel. Here he is describing the challenges. One of the major challenges in design was the wheel itself. Since we could not use uh, rubber tires or plastic materials because of the high and low temperatures, at the low temperature the rubber would become like glass and would shatter. So we had to come up with an all-metal wheel design. So the entire wheel is metal? It is. Why so, didn't they just invent the twheel? The twheel? Have you seen the twheel? Is that the thing where it like is... It's a tire and a wheel <laughs> at the same time? Yeah, but they couldn't use rubber because it would That's shatter. That's true. That's true. It's you couldn't so even, cold. You couldn't even use a twheel. No, you couldn't use a twheel. So what these wheels were, they consisted of a spun aluminum hub and a 32-inch diameter, 9-inch wide tire made from zinc-coated woven steel strands. Oh, my goodness. So it's basically a wire mesh wheel. It's actually a spring, yes. if you think about it. So that was then covered in titanium chevrons that are basically the tread pattern to create traction. This thing sounds incredibly overbuilt, this wheel. It is. They even had inside it, because like you say, it's basically the tire itself is the whole sprung component, and the right. suspension itself. It's basically the steel belt of any tire. But, yes, but it's all one but that's big all it is. woven mesh. Right. It also had what they called a bump stop inside the wheel. So as that wire mesh tire deformed, mm -hmm. rather than just like hitting that steel... Um, the rim. The rim. It's not even a rim, really. It's basically a circular plate that this is riveted to. Rather than just hitting that abruptly, they also had another metal ring inside the tire that would also deform and act as a bump stop. Because they had no idea how rough the surface would really they be. They didn't. They did say, I think they sent up some sort of probe ahead of time, but they said, okay, well, this part's seemingly sandy, and over here we have rock. So how right. are we going to... And there's all these cool test videos of them trying out these different wheels out in, like, Arizona or someplace. So the Rover project, completed in a hectic 17 months, wasn't cheap. Final cost for the project was $38 million in 1969. What is that in today's dollars? $240 million. Wow. Four lunar rovers in all were produced, one for each of the Apollo missions 15, 16, and 17, and one used for spare parts after the cancellation of further Apollo missions. So each of the four flight rovers individually cost $1.5 million to produce in 1969, or nearly $10 million today. So three of these rovers went to the moon, Chris. The fourth was reserved for spare parts, as I mentioned. The first moon road trip had Apollo 15 lunar module pilot Jim Irwin in the observer seat and Commander Dave Scott at the wheel. Now, let's be clear. They didn't, obviously, now I'm realizing they didn't take one of these on the first no, mission. So that this, was Apollo 11. Yes, yeah, so they basically came up with the idea right before Apollo 11, right. right? But rather than saying, no, we already got everything planned, we can't do this, they said, okay, Let's do it. Let's develop it. And on Apollo 15, they finally got one up on the moon. Okay. So the rover was operated by a joystick in the middle of the rover. There's no steering wheel. 
And what's interesting is this joystick, it operated two motors on each of the front and rear axle. So it's basically electric steering via motors that turned the wheels. Right. Which I don't... Is why, it four-wheel steering? It is four-wheel steering, okay. yeah. I don't understand why they added that complexity rather than just having like some sort of linkage. linkage. Right. Weight? You think electronics know. are lighter than linkage? I don't know. I guess it depends. I mean, they're they're ounce counting, right? I mean, exactly. this is like... So if you're having a, a steering column, a steering wheel, a knuckle... All that stuff that you're getting rid of in lieu of just having some electrical components. I mean, True. It's going to be those white wires you mentioned. The white wires. Just two white wires. It's going to be a lot. <laughs> it's going to be a lot lighter. I mean, you still have to have some sort of steering box. I imagine that's going to articulate the wheels. Yeah, I'm not sure, but regardless, that's how they did it. Uh, within minutes of heading off on their first expedition, Irwin or Scott were laughing with sheer fun of driving on the moon. In 15 minutes of driving on that first trip, Scott and Irwin went farther than any of the previous three Apollo landing crews had been able to or allowed to walk in hours on the surface, right? It helps when you actually have a vehicle. So on that first jaunt alone, one of three using the rover, Scott and Irwin stayed out for two hours, driving around, getting out, gathering specimens, filming geological features, and then hopping back in the buggy and racing off to the next place. Apollo 15, 16, and 17 each carried a rover, and the two-man crews ended up being able to explore wide swaths of the terrain that they never would have been able to otherwise. Apollo 16 astronaut John Young took a few minutes to pull the rover through its full paces. Maximum speed, tight turns, dirt flying to show the engineers what the rover could do in a test that became known as the Lunar Grand Prix. Hey, well, four minutes worth, John. That was a minute and five. Maybe you could do it twice more. Surely. Okay, turn sharp. <laughs> I have no desire to turn sharp. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's a sharpie. Hey, that's great. Man, those things, when, it, when those wheels really dig in, Don, John, when you turn, it's when you get the rooster tail. The suspension uh, system on that thing is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. That sounds good. Uh, we sound like we've probably got enough of the Grand Prix. We're willing to let you go on from here. So that was basically the engineers from GM, is my understanding, requested that, okay, you could put it up there, and I know you have missions to go scout out different places, but can you abuse like, this thing a little bit? Can you abuse it and show us how it really works up there? And so they had four minutes of what they called the Lunar Grand Prix, where, these, where the one guy got out and filmed the other guy driving. And well, there's, so there's video of this. There's video. And the oh, one yeah. guy's like, yeah, man, really, really get on it. Turn tight. And he's like, I have no desire to do that. <laughs> that sounds sketchy to Yes, because think of it. You're in one-sixth grade gravity going over rough terrain so like it's bouncing all over the place oh i'm sure yeah so here's one of the funnier stories from the rover's time on the moon chris i know you don't golf but have you ever driven a golf cart yeah, of course yes. okay so they're I have usually over a golf cart <laughs> okay so you know where this is going they're usually governed to a maximum speed right which of course limits your fun however if you lift off the throttle while going down a hill the cart will get rolling as fast as gravity in the hill allows right well, apparently the rover seemed to be no different than that. Remember, it had a max speed of eight miles an hour. Propulsion. How about it? Normally we would cut that out, but we'll leave it You're in there for you guys. I'm okay. leaving that. That's right. great. <laughs> so <laughs> heading back to the lunar module from the first rover excursion, Scott and Irwin got going so fast down a lunar crater, they accidentally 
got airborne, did a 180 degree spin in the rover, and got into an instant from zooming downhill to be pointing back up the hill. It sent them both into gales of laughter, which Mission Control took a moment to appreciate. Said Scott to Mission Control, Boy, I tell you, Joe, this is a super way to travel. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, not all rover missions went entirely smoothly. During the 17th Apollo mission, Commander Eugene Jean Cernan and Lunar Module Pilot Harrison Jack Schmidt... Okay, Chris, why do all of the astronauts have, like, nicknames? Like, cool nicknames? Because they're the coolest people to exist. Right? I mean, there's no... Eugene Jean and Harrison Jack. There is nobody cooler than an astronaut that's gone to the moon. I I don't care. I mean, I can't think of another person cooler than that. I can't either. All right. So Gene and Jack here explored the lunar surface while Ron Evans remained at the command module America. Of course, they named the command module America. It's the the best place you could be. Absolutely. So it was at the end of the first EVA, which is extra vehicle, uh, extra vehicle. A, what does A stand for? An EVA. Extra vehicle something. Adventure. Yes, adventure. (laughs) That's probably not right. (laughs) That the trouble arose, placing the mission in serious jeopardy. Oh, you won't believe it. You did it again. Oh, there goes a fender. (laughs) Oh, shoot. They, uh... Bob, I'm moving down sign. Well, I'll get that in a minute. <laughs> oh, shoot. Shoot. I love so, it. So Cernan's hammer in one of his suit pockets had caught the edge of the backright tire's fender extension, and it cracked clean off. So you remember, these guys have all their tools on their spacesuit. Yep. He's walking by, and kink, it cracks off. Now, this might seem like no big deal. It's just a superfluous fender, right? Well... Without the fender extension protecting them from moon dust, driving the lunar rover actually became a serious hazard. Yeah, you don't want to get a puncture in your suit from some... Right. So think about this, Chris. On the moon, you have zero air resistance with only one-sixth the gravity of Earth. So anything kicked up by these wire wheels travels really quick, much and also, quicker than it thing. would. Think about it this way. What causes... When you pick, go, to the, go to the ocean or you go anywhere, why are yes. rocks round and smooth? Because of water, water or wind them. or yes, wind. Exactly. So these are all sharp. Everything there's got to be sharp. Yes. It's like shattered glass. The sand found on the moon is like nothing else found on Earth. As you mentioned, without wind or water to wear down the soil, the particles are extremely abrasive. So here's my analogy, Chris. It's basically like you're riding in a convertible and there's a guy outside on the running board just standing with there with a sandblaster shooting the harshest, most abrasive sand you can imagine right at you. Not good. No. So without the fender extension, the rover caused massive rooster tails spreading lunar dust all over the instruments and suits into every nook and cranny as well as abrasion the actual suits and materials. And this caused a whole separate problem. The dark colored dust was allowed to stay on instruments for too long. The dust would absorb the heat and radiation from the sun. It would actually bake the instruments to very high temperatures, which would cause them to fail. So not only do you have the dust causing the first issue of... But it's thermally impacting. Exactly. So aware of these concerns, Cernan had first attempted to reattach the fender with good old-fashioned duct tape. However, due to the dust, the tape simply didn't stick. There's no way, right? So it's an adhesiveness of the fender. It fell off between the experiment sites. So it didn't work at all. A better fix to this very dirty problem was required. So just in the case of the famous Apollo 13 issue, the astronauts radioed back to Houston for a solution. So while the astronauts slept, 
NASA's nerdiest were on the case. John Young, Charlie Duke, Deke Slayton, Rocco Patron. Rocco Patron? <laughs> These guys are all... What? These the guys all sound like dudes you'd want to have a beer with. Oh, yeah. So Rocco Patron and Ronald Belvins were challenged with creating a replacement fender with only the materials that the astronauts had on the moon. Without the fender, as we mentioned, it would be the LRV would be completely useless for the rest of the mission. So when the astronauts awoke, the brainiacs back at Houston had come up with what I will presume is the most MacGyver-seeming fix that NASA has ever produced. So their solution was to attach four of 28 lunar maps they had, which are basically just laminated paper, with what Cernan would later call, quote, good old-fashioned American duct tape, which was, of course, standard, Chris. Do you think they sell duct tape in Russia? I bet they don't even know. No. <laughs> duct tape, though, was standard equipment on every single Apollo mission. Which I think is awesome. Of course it should be. Well, that explains why the Russians never made it to the moon. They didn't have any duct <laughs> they tape. They didn't have duct tape. It was the only thing. <laughs> so these maps were instructed to be configured in a way that would contour the surface to add the necessary structural strength and resemble the actual fender extension itself. Can you imagine these five nerdy engineers back in NASA? Like, I imagine it went a little bit like probably four hours of what are we going to do? And then the last hour is like, fuck it. Let's just use this duct tape. <laughs> <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah okay so the makeshift fender was then affixed to the remaining portion with two clamps from the optical alignment telescope on the lunar lander so they knew duct tape wouldn't stick to the existing fender so they had some c-clamps so basically like c-clamps is yeah. what i'm picturing so interestingly enough the repair was thought to be of such significance because it did work and they were able to continue the mission before the astronauts disembarked from the moon they decided to take the contraption back with so they them. brought the fender home. They brought the homemade fender with them. That fender is now located in the Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. Which, by the way, is one of my favorite museums. I have it never been. absolutely incredible. Yeah. So, Chris, Apollo 17 marks the last time men have walked and driven on the moon. I just hope the next time we go back, we will take the car. Well, I would think that we're going to. I would think that there's going to be. I imagine this future where you don't bring the car, but when you get there, you just 3D print the car. Ooh. I think that's that's got to be the way things go, right? You got yeah. to be able to just, because you can't, you can maybe bring the filament to 3D print things. Okay. And then just make them when you're there. Sure. I think that's going to be the way to go. Hopefully we can see like a real Lunar Grand Prix, like an actual competition. That's probably not going to happen oh, in our lifetime. On. That's, That'd be sweet. No, well, there's no comp. There's really no competition because you have normally you'd have like an Olympic competition where you have a bunch of countries competing against yeah. each other. When you go to the moon, everybody's just a human. <laughs> yeah, you're you right. know you you don't have you, you're from Earth. Right. You're not from China. You're, an you're not from the United States. You're an Earthling. That's right, <laughs> Jake. I love this episode. That was a lot of fun. Again, yeah. thanks everybody for being a Patreon. We hope you enjoyed this. Uh, we will see you guys on Monday, I guess, is when uh, you well, guys... Well, depending will. on when you're listening to this. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's probably true. <laughs> we'll see you when we see you. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. 
ground control to major tones. Seven, six, commencing countdown engines on. Three, two, check ignition and may God's love be with you.